0: Welcome to Behind the Ticker. I'm Brad Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Thor Financial Technologies and Portfolio Manager of THLV, the Thor Low Volatility ETF. Behind the Ticker uncovers the inner workings of the ETF industry. We will interview portfolio managers and ETF service providers to dive deep into their work lives and their businesses. We will learn the inner workings of their strategies and what drives them as they continue to grow their company. Many of these individuals are entrepreneurs and will have unique and compelling insights to share as much goes on behind the ticker. Please note, nothing in this show is investment advice, and it is meant solely for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome to Behind the Ticker. Today we have Reagan Steinke. He is the founder of Ballast Asset Management. They have a long history in the space, specifically small and mid-cap SMA products, and have jumped into the ETF world a few years back with their small mid-cap active ETF, MGMT. I think you're going to find this conversation extremely interesting, specifically around their fundamental process, as well as how they view and evaluate management and how they view and evaluate risk. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Mr. Reagan Steinke. Hey Reagan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brad. Excited to be here. So, before we get started, can you tell everybody a little bit about your background and how you got into the position that you are today?
1: Sure. So, I'll uh, I'll go back uh, a little ways. I think it's uh, will be helpful to uh, to offer some of uh, how I got my start. So, uh, my first job out of college was with Arthur Anderson. and uh, this is the mid '90s, and I was in the business valuation group there to say that's where uh i learned to value things in the real world as opposed to an academic perspective uh it's also where i met uh, one of my business partners Jay and He and i have known each other for just 30 years now and worked on and off together uh then went to ubs in new york was a software analyst initially and then moved into a, uh, the strategy role uh, And there i worked with my other business partner today uh, Fogarty. So I've known him for over 20 years. I uh, was recruited to a company called Westwood here in Dallas back in 04. And uh, where Jay and I started the um, mid strategy uh, there at Westwood, and raised three and a half billion, raised another billion or so in a sister strategy. And then I left in 2015 and started Ballast the day after I left. Uh, historically, we have uh, managed primarily institutional uh, capital. Uh, of that uh, $4.5 billion, probably 85 or 90% was uh, was institutional. And then uh, three years ago, through a, uh, or I should say as a result of an SEC opinion letter that allowed active managers such as ourselves to, to have the same uh, efficiency and an ETF strategy as, as the passive uh, the, guys, uh, we launched uh, the first my knowledge, uh, a small, uh, small and mid-cap actively managed ETF. So that uh, brings it through today.
0: Yeah, that's great. And before we jump into that, um, I always like to ask everybody, what interests or hobbies do you have outside the office when you're not, you know, behind the computer screen running money? Sure. Well, uh, I can, I'll tell you, I have four children that uh, are all relatively young.
1: And so uh, one of them I guess one of my interests and hobbies is is coaching them and youth sports. Uh, I, I've spent uh, a lot of time doing that. Uh, but outside of that, I'm, I'm a big outdoorsman. I love hunting love and fishing, and uh, I love sharing that uh, that hobby with my children.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. I'm actually you're, you're from uh, you're in Dallas. So are you are you still in Dallas? I am. I am in Dallas. Yes. Yeah, i I'm, I might be adopting the Cowboys as my team this year because the Steelers are just awful.
1: So, uh, well, I will tell you to be careful. Uh, the the, uh, the Cowboys are uh, are certainly good at uh, breaking hearts on uh, with a regular occurrence. Yeah, I
0: uh, yeah they've they've had some high expectations and uh, have not done what they probably should have been doing over the last couple of years. But they're my team this year, and. Um, yeah, I, I also coach you sports and it's it's very fulfilling and fun. And I got a couple of kids, so I definitely uh, know where you're coming from and can relate. So let's talk about, you know, ballast asset management. I know you have the ETF, which we're going to talk about. Are you guys, um, did you start out running SMAs and then converting SMA assets into the ETF? Is that kind of how you got your start? We did start out uh, running
1: SMAs and, and continue to run the SMAs today. Um, the, uh, the way I think about it. ETF. It's the uh, the same strategy. Uh, it's just a different vehicle for uh, accessing. Uh, you know, same strategy. We we have a single strategy. This is all we do. Uh, we've done it for going on twenty years now. And uh, so, yeah.
0: So let's dive into MGMT, uh, which is your small and mid cap ETF. Can you give kind of a high level overview of what the strategy is is trying to accomplish and what it's designed to do? Sure.
1: What? Highest level, what we are trying to accomplish is to turn alpha generation into a manufacturing process, rather than a process that is reliant on either my or any of my uh, teammates' ability to be right all the time. And that really starts with a uh, with a focus on quantifying downside. That is really the the cornerstone within our process, and it uh, you know. I'm just a minute to, to explain because there's a, a I think an important distinction between uh, buying something with, at a discount to its intrinsic value or with a margin of, of safety, you know, sort of the, the common buzzwords you often hear, and, 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 and what we do. We're ultimately trying to buy within 20 to 30% of the worst case scenario that we can envision. And once we quantify that downside, then we'll look at the upside where we're forecasting a base business out three years, uh, coming up with price targets. And then very simply, we're marrying those two bits of analysis, such that we have this uh, downside versus upside, we call that we invert that and call it a report to risk ratio. And we're looking for asymmetry of at least three to one. And again, our process is reliant on exploiting that asymmetry and being extraordinarily consistent in applying this framework over and over and, mm-hmm. over, and over again, as opposed to uh, being, using things like conviction uh, or uh, you know, some of the other uh, common Buss buzzwords that you hear have gone around and, and the reason for that really is that uh, when you use, you use things like convic- conviction or probability, uh, you are inherently exposing yourself to many of the behavioral pitfalls that we as humans are subject to. I'm a huge student of behavioral finance. Uh, I won't say that Kahneman and Traversky are required reading to work at Ballast, uh, but it's but it's heavily encouraged. And and so we're trying to do everything we can to take as much of, um, you know, to put as many guardrails in as we can to protect ourselves against uh, those behavioral mistakes.
0: Yeah, no, it's definitely important. I'm a big believer in, in, behavioral finance and trying to avoid those pitfalls. I mean, everything we do is, is systematic as well. But before we dive into kind of like the investment process, um, I want to know, I want to get your take on why that small and mid cap space offers such a unique opportunity, specifically for finding kind of alpha generating companies and, and higher growth. You know, what is it about that space that you find attractive? And what is it about those companies or maybe the management team specifically that allows you to, Drive and generate that alpha.
1: Sure, there's a there's a couple of things. One that I, I don't often hear talked about, but uh, it's actually uh, become like worse, I guess, uh, better for active managers over the last twenty years. And uh, you know, I'll take you back to the '90s when these stocks traded on fractions, you know, sixteenth and eighth, quarter of a point. We moved into the early odds, and we went to decimalization. And initially, those commissions were Five to seven cents. You know, down. commissions are down to a penny or half a penny a share in, in a lot of instances these days. And the reality is that many of the large brokerage firms that use commissions from their trading desks to pay sell side analysts to cover these stocks uh, just don't cover these because they just they don't trade enough uh, to generate enough um, uh, dollars to uh, to pay their their analysts. So we've seen over the last twenty years. Um, a remarkable drop in coverage for, uh, for many of the businesses uh, we own. And uh, while that you know, makes it a little more difficult to get up to speed, it uh, rewards folks that are, are willing to roll up their sleeves and, and to uh, do the uh, work themselves.
0: So let's talk about kind of the investment selection. I know you talked about you know, the, the risk and reward ratio. I mean, are you looking at that through like a fundamental screening process? Like how are you drilling down and finding opportunities?
1: Sure. So we uh, it really starts with eliminating things that uh, we just know we're not interested in. Uh, we uh, have valuation framework that uh, we're not willing to pay more than let's call it you know twelve or thirteen times EBITDA for a business. Uh, we want our businesses to have operational leverage and uh, generate returns through financial leverage. So we're extraordinarily focused on. Shoots. Uh, we don't mix uh, uh, again uh, cyclicals with uh, with financial leverage. Um, we are exceedingly focused on management teams that are uh, very capable of deploying capital at uh, very high attractive rates of return, and who get paid based on their success or lack thereof, and in, um, in doing that. So that's really you know kind of step one for us, uh, super focused on free cash flow. Uh, having worked, again, at Arthur Anderson early in my career, I, I can tell you that companies are able to manufacture earnings through accounting gimmickry. You can uh, distort book value. Uh, the one thing you can't uh, distort is cash going into and out of a, a bank account. So those are really sort of the primary metrics that we are focused on early on. Uh, you know, as we get interested in, in working on an email.
0: So you you briefly touched on you know looking at management. What what specific qualities are you trying to identify that makes a great management team that you're comfortable with and, and taking an investment in their company? Right.
1: Hold on, uh, just for your listeners, I'll tell you we we actually run a white paper on this. It's on our website if you want to get deeper. But we've got kind of a management checklist, and, and it goes into a couple of things. <clears throat> First and foremost. Um, We want to make sure that management is aligned with our customers, and we do that by uh, really digging into how they get paid. And notice I said how, not how much. We want to make sure that the metrics that are used to determine what they get paid are, you know, aligned with uh, when they win our customers. So, just as a quick example. If you are a retailer, a CEO of a retail company, and you get paid based on revenue growth, the easiest way to grow revenue as a retailer is to just build more stores. Well, that may or may not be the right answer uh, for our investors. That you know, incremental capital being deployed uh, could be done at uh, you know at dramatically lower rates of return. So the focus should be just focused on your existing. That's a a big component of it. The other thing is evaluating throughout uh, the management's you know, careers um, how, how well they have done at deploying count uh, either previous jobs or previous divisions you know, in the same company. Um, and then the third piece is, is making sure that the management team that is there is the right fit for that company at that time, right? So um, having a, a manager that is exceedingly focused on growth for a more mature business that uh, really needs someone that is more operationally focused might not be a great match. And having someone that is, is uh, purely operationally focused for a, a business that's a little earlier in its life cycle, uh, that might not be a great match. So we're really, uh, uh, again, focused on trying to make sure that we've got the, the right team for the right company at the right time and that they have uh, uh, you know, a history and an aptitude. Uh, To execute.
0: So that's interesting. So you could be excited about a company's financial metrics, but maybe not excited about the management team. And and if there's a a shakeup or a change in management, would that take something off of kind of a no fly list and put it on a fly list for you?
1: Yes, absolutely. And and it's happened uh, a number of times in the past where we have found a business that uh, we are interested in, but where there is a misalignment of interest. Uh, with uh, the management team, and then uh, oftentimes that'll be, you know, either the, the wrong CEO in place or the wrong compensation structure, and when we'll see that change, and, uh, you know, you bring in a new CEO and you change just as a for instance compensation structure being focused on hitting revenue or earnings targets, and, and then, you know, being all of a sudden there's a return component, uh, whether it's return on investment capital, return on equity, et cetera. And uh, that will be a catalyst for us to uh, reevaluate, perhaps uh, take a position that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So you talk about risk management being paramount. You know, I could. How are you quantifying what the downside risk is? Like through kind of fundamental analysis, and you know, obviously looking at management. Like, how are you identifying and quantifying the risk of the downside? Because it's it's a lot easier to be optimistic, I think, in finding. What the growth opportunity is, but sometimes the other side of the equation is a little bit more difficult. Can you can you talk about that process a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. and this this really goes back to Jay and I's day at, at Arthur Anderson, our days at Arthur Anderson in the business valuation group. Uh, you know, we look at it in a number of different ways, and it will change somewhat depending on the business that you're looking at. Right. So let's take a, a software company as a friend. Uh, and it, it there's Those business models have changed somewhat over the last decade, but, um, you know, if you think about a software company, we'll look at the component of recurring revenue of that business and uh, just say, okay, let's say, you know, their new product growth goes to effectively zero and we've got a renewal rate on this recurring revenue. Uh, You know, what does that look look like if we just uh, sort of liquidate that into the future or You know, we've got hundreds of examples that those types of software businesses tend to get bought for somewhere between three and five times their maintenance revenue, that subscription rate. So that's an example. We'll look at a bank where we will take their loan book and do a burn down, uh, category by category, right? So we'll look at uh, you know the 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 uh, mortgage side of the business or the commercial real estate side of the business, look at historical periods of recession and you know, what uh, values and losses went to during those times of stress. Um, we do, you know, LBO analysis. Uh, we will do, uh, you know, some of the parts analysis. Uh, we've literally looked at shipping companies where we said, what is this, you know, what is, what's their fleet worth in the secondary market during a uh, times of stress? And You know, what's it worth with the fresh steel? So really hitting on these from a number of different angles. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, the, the reality is, is that, uh, to your point, uh, the upside may look uh, extraordinarily attractive, but from our perspective, the downside is just too great, or we can't quantify it, and, uh, and therefore we won't invest.
0: Yeah, it's it's an extremely interesting process and completely well thought out and designed. I mean, I talked to a lot of ETF managers, and um, you guys are definitely taking kind of the extra step of really looking into management and looking to see what the downside risks are. I'm, I'm curious when you start to identify, you, you do, you run your whole process. Um, you find, you know, your investment selection. How are you then compiling the portfolio in terms of position sizing? It's not equal weight, is it? You're, you're, you're putting, you're kind of moving chips around and, and overweighting some things and maybe underweighting some others.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's not equal weight. And so we use all else equal, that reward-to-risk ratio that I mentioned, uh, we use that in order to size positions. So very simply, the greater the asymmetry and the upside versus the downside, the larger the position size up to match of 3% purchase. So the way to think about this is that, you know, over time, uh, as a stock goes up and that reward-to-risk ratio falls, we'll use that uh, to, to cut back positions. And then we overlay, I said all else equal, but we overlay on top of that we have a, a proprietary risk management uh, model that uh, that we employ to help uh, help guide us in, in putting uh, those different positions together. And we say a, an analyst's job is to paint perfect stroke on a piece of canvas, uh, brushstroke on a piece of canvas. As a portfolio manager, it's our job to step back and make sure that we have a picture that makes sense. So uh, our risk model is fundamentally driven. We, we look at all of the revenue and earnings associated. Uh, with uh, all of our businesses and break those down based on uh, fundamental factors, things like cyclicality uh, in markets, uh, et cetera. And then we aggregate that data back up such that we have a holistic view of risk. And So uh, it's a combination of overlaying that on top of that, uh, that reward to risk
0: ratio. So... When uh, does MGMT have a I know it's an active ETF, but does it have a set rebalance schedule when you're kind of rerunning screens and reposition sizing? Or are you you guys doing everything on the fly over there and and things could change day to day?
1: Yeah, There is no set rebalance schedule. Uh, The rebalancing occurs uh, purely when we're either buying or selling positions uh, on a position by position basis.
0: So when you guys are out there talking to RIAs or advisors or institutions and they have kind of a, a model portfolio framework already existing in the firm, where are you positioning MGMT as a, as a holding to kind of encompass or fit in that over uh, overall model portfolio?
1: Sure. So it's really two things, either A, as um, you know, a replacement to uh, passive ETFs. Uh, um, and a lot of t- many of the uh, the ETFs out there uh, within that are competitors for us are either thematic or quantitative or just pure pure passive, and uh, you know, we are, are very fundamental and, and think uh, certainly in times like this where uh, there's a lot of economic uncertainty that uh, that's where real value uh, comes into play, uh, and, and you know the other is just uh, purely in, in allocations uh, we've seen. Over the last 10 years, large-cap growth has obviously dramatically outperformed uh, small-cap value. And our perspective is that the, uh, the next 10 years is unlikely to look like the last 10 and uh, that, that one should uh, should have an application to uh, small-cap value.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And having experience in both the SMA world and the ETF world now, can you talk about just how you see the sales process Differently for maybe going out and trying to uh, have an advisor utilize your SMA versus, you know, having a publicly traded process or a, p- a publicly traded product um, and getting kind of ETF allocations is, is the sale process. The sales process the same? Is it different? You know, can you talk about distribution a little bit? Sure. It's uh, I would say it's very different
1: uh, within the SMA world, particularly and on the institutional side uh, that we had historically focused on. That is very consultant-driven. So, you know, the process is to uh, get approved by the, the major consultants, uh, you know, the Cowans and Ruffles and PCs of the world, and, uh, you know, that's a process in and of itself uh, that can take uh, years, many instances. But uh, once you're approved there, then then you're able to get included in searches anytime there's uh, movement, you know, a public plan or corporate plan needs to replace or a manager, you know, your, Able to be included in those searches. That's very different. What we've learned within um, the ETF space, and, and much more driven by you know the RIs, uh, wealth advisors, family offices, etc. Uh, it's just much more hand to hand. And you've uh, you know there's the process of, of building your brand and uh, getting your name out there, but uh, also just a, uh, a huge effort uh, through through our partners at SkyPoint that um, that are just calling on uh, advisors every day, uh, just trying to get them up to speed on the story. And uh, I it, think it, it requires a lot more content, uh, a lot shorter content. Our letters for uh, the ETF tend to be much shorter, much more often. And uh, it's just, it feels like it's much more of a volume game.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, c- I couldn't agree more. It seems like running an ETF these days, you've, you've got to be – Front and center almost every day, um, and, and and getting that brand recognition. But you know, Reagan, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, very, very interesting product that I think is well thought out. I, I think deserves a spot um, in that model portfolio process, as you said, s- especially with kind of the environment we may be entering in here over the next, uh, you know, next few years and next decade. But before I let you go, where can people learn more about Ballast? Where can they learn more about the ETF and, and get all the information on your firm?
1: Sure. So you can learn more about the ETF at mgmtetf.com, and you can learn more about Ballast at uh, b a l l a s t a m dot com. And we put down all of the, the uh, material that we write and uh, articles on. Both the firm and the fund are on either of those two uh, websites, so I would uh, would encourage you to, to go there first. Uh, very much appreciate you having us uh, on the call, and I will tell you we're. I've always told people when they ask me to sum up in a single sentence, I would tell you that we're the firm that looks both ways when we cross a one-way street.
0: <laughs> That's perfect. Well, Reagan, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate all the information, and hope to have the opportunity to meet you in the future. And And learn more about you and the firm. Absolutely, thank you, Brad.